This morning we continue our sermon series on what it means to be exiles, that we are far from home, far from heaven, far from God's presence in this broken world, but at the same time our God walks with us. Jesus comes to live within us, and that changes how we approach, how we interact uh, in this world, in our own lives, with the people we meet and the people we love. And this morning, we're going to read uh, from a very early moment in the life of Jesus, extremely early, actually, about how Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus uh, flee to Egypt uh, at the threat of uh, the uh, Herod. And we read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, this. When they had gone, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a family with four young uh, children, our home straddles the boundary between normal life and abrupt chaos. <laughs> when, the, uh, when the structures of parenting work, just like in any family, we experience mainly good and some not-so-good moments. We get an unexpected hug from a cranky toddler, a fight breaks out over Legos, the great eater decides to boycott dinner, and so on. Those things happen. The past few weeks, however, as winter has moved into spring, uh, seems to have made our children completely lose their minds. (laughs) As kids, they already want to be moving every moment of the day. So when the sun suddenly stays out uh, for an hour later, and it's light when you put them to bed, uh, bedtime, going to sleep, doesn't hold the same appeal. Uh, Our girls uh, ask every night if they can stay up later, and sometimes they see, you know, kids riding their bikes around at like 8 o'clock at night out their window. They're like, they're playing. We're like, I don't care about them. You need to go see. Um, Sam, uh, who's two years old, he just laughs at us when we put him to bed, and it's still sunny out. (laughs) 
This is a normal disorder, but the disorder we experience as a family is just a superficial symptom of the underlying brokenness of our world. Growing together as a family is a blessing from God, but the anxiety and exhaustion of raising children, the dysfunction that bubbles up when people of every age live together under one roof reveals a deeper truth. Despite all the joy and goodness and beauty and love we have experienced in our lives, we still operate in a fractured reality. A corrupted version of the creation God originally designed to flourish. No matter your family situation or your daily routines, no matter if most of your day goes like clockwork or if it falls apart all the time, we are never entirely free from the turbulent chaos surrounding us. Sometimes this internal disorder comes from our own choices. We overschedule our calendars and so we run Uh, around from one activity to the next, barely able to catch our breath. The sin present in each of us still has the power to tilt us in the wrong direction, so we sometimes say the wrong things, or even worse, never recognize the right choice to make. But modern life, life in our age, in our current year, uh, adds layers of even deeper stress and anxiety as the brokenness around us tends to invade our life, stealing hope and peace and joy. On the surface, our world trends toward chaos, and we know this. It's sad, but we can find this out just by watching the news. Things are not exactly as they should be. And this isn't just a recent development. Things have been broken since the first sin, originating in the garden, but affecting every aspect of of our lives. Most of us, unfortunately, know this through personal experience. Illness strikes without reason, hijacking the lives of those we love towards some uncertain end. Tragedies appear without warning, disrupting our lives and leaving us to pick up the pieces. Relationships have fallen apart, dreams have not come true, all of those things we've experienced. And in a world like this, we crave stability. We want to remember, to hear that our God is with us, that he understands where we are. Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt, however, shows us that he is, shows us that our God faithfully delivers his children through the chaos so the peace of his kingdom might not only reign in us, but throughout the whole world. In the weeks following Jesus' birth, Herod's actions uh, really echo what we experience today. Herod's actions surround the most joyous moment of history, the birth of the Savior, with the dark clouds of a broken world. Soon after Jesus was born, uh, Magi came from the east following and following ancient customs, requested permission uh, from Herod, the local ruling authority, to seek the king of the Jews who had been born in Bethlehem. Herod officially gives permission, but he privately views uh, this new Messiah as a threat. The Magi say that this is the king of kings, and Herod does not like that because he's just one king among many kings. Herod agrees. He says, yeah, you can go seek this king. 
And he says, uh, he asked the wise men to inform him of the infant's location so he too may offer praise. But Herod did not have that actual desire. Some historians theorize he struggled with mental illness, but others believe he just fit uh, the mold for a Roman ruler of the time, power hungry and paranoid. Uh, James Boyce uh, wrote, Uh, This about Herod. In his later years, Herod was terrifying. He murdered his favorite wife on suspicion of treason, had her two sons strangled, her parents stabbed, and as a last act of violence, had his own son, eldest son, executed for promoting himself as heir. Having alerted Herod to the Messiah's birth, the wise men unintentionally, accidentally, Place the infant Christ in the crosshairs of a delusional king. However, being warned by an angel in a dream, the Magi head home in a different direction, and they don't betray the location of Jesus to Herod. When Herod learns of their deception, he becomes furious, and he orders something, frankly, terrible. He orders the murder of every male child under the age of two just to be safe. All of them need to die in case one of them is this king of kings. Now this command came quickly and it put Jesus into his, and his parents into immediate danger. The angel of the Lord uh, urges Joseph in a dream to get up, to take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now the Greek tells us this is not a gentle request. It's not like, hey, when you get around to it, it'd be time. It would be good for you not to be here right now. It's an imperative command. Basically, the angel says, get up and go now. And so Mary and Joseph leave that night, outrunning a spiritual hurricane, the brutal world, crashing through the streets of Bethlehem, threatening to undo the Lord's plans before they even began. Uh, Dale Allison uh, writes this. He's a biblical scholar. He says this about this time, this moment in history. The world into which the Messiah comes is in chaos and decay. Things need to be righted. When Jesus is born, Jerusalem, instead of being overjoyed, is troubled at the news. And there is upon Israel's throne a wicked and illegitimate ruler. Innocent blood is about to be shed. In brief, the world is ill. Sometimes we imagine the birth of Jesus as peaceful and serene. But the Savior took his first breath in a hostile world antagonistic to his presence. This makes sense if we remember that both sinful humanity and the powers of evil present in this world both reject the arrival of God's kingdom. Jesus came to be the light to a world that preferred darkness, to present God's righteousness to a people that preferred their sin. The birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, who promised to transform all things according to his design, threatened not just the local government, but the entire world order. The world always moves in opposition to the transformation that God promises to the Messiah. It's a strange parallel, too, if we pull back. The beginning of Jesus' life mirrors the end. 
Those in power unleash their fury against a gracious king, attempt to kill him, leaving death and destruction in their wake. Jesus thankfully escapes here, but Bethlehem's children are left the unintended victim of the powers that rage around them. Matthew understands the depth of this tragedy, the the evil that is happening around Jesus, and he recalls a lament from Jeremiah 31. He writes, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and a great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, one of the earliest mothers of Israel, first symbolically wept for the children of Israel when they were taken by Babylon into exile. But she weeps again here for the children murdered by Herod. On one level, this should make us feel slightly uncomfortable. Jesus escapes, yes, and that's good. But so many others don't. Even when we read this today, it feels like sin and evil are winning in this moment. The slaughter of innocent children is beyond unjust. It's horrific. What's worse is that the Savior, the one born to save all humanity, is the catalyst to their death. Slowly, Herod's anger cools, but he dies just a few months later. Jesus eventually returns, but the families of Bethlehem have lost their children forever. How can such cruelty not just go unpunished, but be allowed to exist at all? Doesn't our Lord care about when his children suffer? Why didn't he send angels to protect these families and save them from such profound loss and agony? Sadly, these are the kinds of questions that we still ask today about our world. Because it still can sometimes seem that evil and sin might be winning. Pictures of Ukrainian families fleeing their homes for the border. Children covered in blood because their bedrooms have become a battleground between armies suggests that evil controls more than we'd like to admit. When the powerful are rewarded and the poor remain forgotten, when we treat one another not like neighbors made in the image of God, but enemies deserving scorn, it still feels like sin has the upper hand in the hearts of humanity. When we look at the hard and difficult things of our own life, Those places where love hasn't triumphed, where hope has fallen short, where kindness is mocked, where joy feels inadequate, we may feel that God hasn't kept his promises, that he isn't there. We might struggle to recognize his presence in our lives. The chaos of this world crashes into our lives in such convincing fashion, we wonder whether the promise of Jesus can prevail against such overwhelming odds. But we find in this story of suffering an eternal answer. Our God delivers Jesus here so he might be free to deliver his children from every moment of suffering when he takes their place on the cross. Far from recalling a terrible prophecy about the destruction of God's children, Matthew's reference to Jeremiah actually does point to God's overarching plan for the redemption of the world. 
Immediately after Rachel's lament, Jeremiah writes, uh, he provides God's response. And this is what he writes He's, uh, here. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded. They will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your descendants. Jeremiah projects not despair, but hope, not just loss, but restoration, not death, but new life. See, the loss of Rachel's children is all too real. Israel and Judah were destroyed by invading armies. Jeremiah then brings a word of comfort. Rachel might weep, but the Lord will bring her children home. That is not the end of the story. The suffering, the sorrow, the loss is not the end of the story in the kingdom of God. There is restoration. There is hope. There is new life. By emphasizing the goodness and providence of their Lord, Jeremiah reminds the people of the final score. God wins. The chaos of sin and evil will be defeated. Knowing the end of the story directs them and us to trust our good father. By evoking Jeremiah's words in this moment, Matthew hoped to remind anybody who read his gospel that even the most appalling tragedies will be redeemed in Jesus. The presence of Jesus in Bethlehem then and the presence of Jesus in our hearts today reveals our God does not reign from some distant castle in the clouds, but actively works to rescue and restore and redeem his children. Matthew wants God's people to understand the deliverance of this one child means that the deaths of the children of Bethlehem were not meaningless. Our Lord will not just hold Herod accountable, but he will reunite those children with their families in the halls of eternity because even death cannot lessen God's love or alter his plans for his children. We see in this moment a foreshadowing of what happens at the cross and resurrection. Death is present, but Jesus conquers it. God's providence points to and flows from the cross, which casts our entire life in a different light. Paul writes in Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose, every moment of suffering will be used by God for our good and his glory. This matters for those of us here still living as exiles in this broken world. We belong to God, but the reality is those hard moments will come to us sooner or later. Jesus talks about suffering. He talks about how if you follow him, there will be suffering. But that's just status quo for living in this broken world. But in Jesus, we find that our God walks with us through those unbearable seasons and is already working to redeem and reclaim them. Even the chaos and injustice of our broken world cannot thwart the Lord's purposes for his people. Look Look to this family's flight from Egypt and notice in the details how our God delivers his children. 
As we look at how God saved them, remember that the same care has been extended, has been extended to us on the cross. Remember, Joseph received word of Herod's command before Herod issued it himself. That's a deliberate uh, thing that happens in this story. Joseph gets up before Herod becomes furious. The warning comes before Herod is angry and issues the command. The verb for flight points to God's direct involvement, implying that they were delivered from and they were carried from danger by some outside external force, that God carried them to safety. The Lord's care can also be seen in the family's destination. The journey from Bethlehem to Egypt was long, but not impossible. And it had uh, uh, become a home to a large Jewish group of, uh, uh, of exiles who had fled persecution under Herod already. So Joseph and Mary wouldn't be alone. They'd find a community. They'd find other brothers and sisters who believed in the Lord to take care of them. That would be important, especially with a young child. They were beyond Herod's jurisdiction. They could not be forcefully extradited. And those in that place, in Egypt, Herod could not touch them. Finally, Herod was at the end of his life, so they could return to Nazareth, back home, sooner rather than later. At every step, the Lord promised that although they must live as fugitives, as exiles in a chaotic world, his love would carry them through every up and down, and he would see them safely home. We are exiles in much the same way today. But their story reminds us that we don't walk through life alone. Although we may have suffered, and although we will probably suffer again, we will always be his children. And he never forgets his children. Our God never forgets his children. He will never forget you. Charles Spurgeon says, this, says that knowing this changes our perspective. He wrote this. Cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules this world. God has purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God has plans, and those plans are wise and can never be dislodged. Church, our Lord works all things for good. Even if, like Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the entire world should crumble around us, and the nations of the world turn against us, we may rest assured that although we may be exiles, we will always be his saints. Although we may suffer, we will always be his children. Although we struggle against the powers of sin and evil and the brokenness of this world in so many different ways, he came so we might learn how to overcome all things with his love. That is who we are. That is our purpose. We are his. Hallelujah. Amen. If you would please pray with me.